Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter Monthly. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara Stratton. Oh, we are two dudes with six names between us and one combined, overarching, all-consuming love of poetry. And today we have gathered to talk about a poem that I picked because I came across it somewhere that maybe y'all did too. Uh, It's called Tis a Fearful Thing by Yehuda Halevi, and it was featured in the final episode, minor poetic spoilers, I guess, uh, (laughs) but it was in the final episode of the recent beautiful Netflix series, uh, Western Godless. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about, I think, the way that it shows up in that series with no plot spoilers at all, just the fact that it's in it. I haven't even seen it, so I can't spoil anything. But That's fantastic. I'll provide uh, some hot takes. <laughs> yeah, hot take from me. You should definitely watch it because it's stupendous. But yeah, I first came across this poem there, and so I really wanted to talk about it because I think it's pretty great. Uh, quickly before reading it, a little bit about Yehuda Halevi and the attribution of this poem. So most of the places that I've seen this poem reproduced, it is attributed to Yehuda Halevi. The series creator of Godless says that's who he got it from and where he first came across it, uh, which is by no means like gospel truth, but it's sort of the best that we can surmise because he really was ancient. He was born in like 1075 to 1086 type range and died in 1141. So, you know, about a thousand years ago, he was he was doing his thing. Um, there are some people online who have attributed it to Chaim Stern, who's a translator born in 1930. It's possible, I guess, that he wrote this, but it seems most likely that the translation that we are using and that is most commonly reproduced in like the contemporary world is his translation of it. Again, we don't know that for sure, and it's possible that he wrote it, but that's the best guess based on all the information at our disposal. This is a great time to mention that if you happen to have definitive information or if you want to look into it and let us know so that we don't say wrong stuff and bad things, you can let us know probably by email is the best, closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. But Yehuda Halevi himself, uh, his childhood was sort of during the First Crusade, which took place uh, in the late 10s. It was like 1095 to 1099, I think. Um, And he was a Jewish poet who was born in Spain and then traveled around uh, and actually died shortly after he first uh, took a trip to the Holy Land, right after he he landed, uh, it's believed, in in Palestine in 1141 is when he died. Um, But he was known for being a poet. He was also a physician. And uh, he was just generally a very prolific writer and thinker. Yeah, he was also a philosopher, kind of theologian, which at that era sort of seemed like similar. But um, his most famous work is the Kuzari, I believe, the Book of Reputation and Proof in Support of the Abased Religion. Um, And that apparently is one of the most important uh, apologetic works of Jewish philosophy. But without further ado, here is the poem. Tis a Fearful Thing by Yehuda Halevi. Tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch, a fearful thing to love, to hope, to dream, to be. 
to be and oh to lose. A thing for fools, this, and a holy thing. A holy thing to love. For your life has lived in me. Your laugh once lifted me. Your word was gift to me. To remember this brings painful joy. Tis a human thing, love, a holy thing, to love what death has touched. Excellent. As uh, you might surmise, the place this shows up in the show is at a funeral. I might have guessed that. Um, yeah. yeah, so that's where you first encountered it. So what was the kind of, well, or context, or at least context of your thoughts about it when you encountered it, without spoiling anything about the show that I am probably going to see right after we record. Well, I don't know, but I'll pretend. I mean, I'll say that for the show. <laughs> Connor, who as soon as we are off the air is going to rush directly <laughs> to his computer, fire up Netflix and watch Godless. Uh, my first thoughts were like, wow, that's a really great poem about loss and what it's like to remember someone who you loved and lost. And the person uh, whose funeral it is is someone who has both personal connections and like community involvement because it's about sort of a small town. And so I was also thinking about like how someone's place in the community uh, works and that feeling of loss for a group of people. Um, but the way that this poem is treated is sort of as summing up a lot of what's been going on in the show and particularly in a show titled Godless and uh, this priest character reads it. So it's a, you know, some kind of Christian or Catholic priest who's now finally traveled to the town reading a Jewish poem that does not, in fact, in the text specifically mention God. And that was, uh, by all accounts, on the part of the series creator, all of that was pretty intentional in terms of what does God look like in this land uh, of the West that he's created. Um, but just that mixture of different religious traditions and the lack of any explicit mention of uh, God, particularly coming from someone who's wearing a priest's collar, I found really fascinating uh, and is part of what I as uh, just really responded to in the poem uh, as sort of drawing human connections and saying that uh, it's a holy thing to to love your fellow man, to love what death can touch at the beginning and then what death has touched at the end. So at the beginning, it's saying it's a fearful thing to love what death can touch. So it's, you're taking a big risk in loving other people whose lives are impermanent, who will at some point no longer be with you. Either you will leave them or they will leave you. That human bond is a risk and is a, a holy and exciting risk. Um, and then at the end to say that, you know, that risk was worth it. It's a holy thing to love what death has touched. Even that loss, the pain of the loss does not outweigh uh, the importance of the relationships that you form with people when they are around. And so this almost humanist message in the poem was something that I really uh, responded to. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I like I like thinking that that's interesting, uh, the context of the, the show. And, and I sort of out of context, I hadn't quite noticed uh the lack of the mention of god but certainly in that specific like fictional tv plot context that would be sort of drawn out very um tellingly but it also it is interesting as you mentioned that the word holy 
features prominently, which I think is, uh, I wonder how sort of uh, maybe radical that that message would have been at the time uh, in, you know, whatever the thousand years ago or even up till fairly recently. I mean, now we sort of, there's a more accepted sense of secular humanism or transcendence or, um, you know, spiritual life that's somehow divorced from a religious tradition. Uh, but this sort of suggesting that, that you can, this act of loving something that can die can and is holy uh, in itself is, um, yeah, a very interesting aspect of the poem. I like that. Um, I, I like that you mentioned how radical was it at the time of writing, because I was thinking about that as well, um, particularly because no matter what, this is a translation, because the original work was either it's a contem more contemporary poem or the original work was not in English. I think it's almost certain that this is a very old poem, originally not in English. Um, and probably in Hebrew, me, right? Probably, probably in Hebrew. Hebrew. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking also about uh, pretty much the biggest, one of the biggest names in poetry uh, is going to be Rumi. And he's huge. And he's also from quite a while ago. Um, Yehuda Halevi in his schooling would have learned uh, all about Arabic poetry and its various styles. And he, in fact, wrote a lot of his verses in those styles. Um, I don't know specifically if this poem conforms to any of those or if this translation seeks to replicate some of those. Um, but what's interesting about Rumi is that in his more contemporary and the super popular translations that are often proliferated, they rework many of those styles and they also remove many of his explicit engagements with uh, Islam because Rumi had his own like spiritual journey from... Uh, entering into sort of what we now know as like more mystical Islam in his later life. I was thinking about how the Rumi that we know and share in these like aphoristic little bits of uh, almost, I don't want to say self-help because that seems derogatory, but like these, these quick one-liners about love and humanism and finding yourself and whatever uh, are pretty far removed from the actual writer who was really deeply engaged with spiritual questions, particularly through his lens of being an Islamic writer. I'm curious if this is a poem where also that element used to be there, and this used to be a more uh, God-centered, and particularly, I am not by any means an expert in the Jewish tradition, but taking a Jewish perspective on uh, like engagement and faith that has somehow been removed over time. And I don't know if it has or not. But yeah. I, I was curious about that. Yeah, that's very fascinating. And and now that I think about it, and was the Khazari was written in Arabic, so this poem could have been also translated originally from the Arabic uh, rather than Hebrew. Um, but yeah, that is like that's a good question that we uh, the the radicalness could be from just the the contemporary translation and so in fact it's not radical per se even though uh powerful in its own right um and that makes me think about because translation is such an interesting um sort of field generally and also in poetry and the one 
annoying thing personally is that I love like reading things so intensely closely and like down to the the line break and the commas and the punctuation and the syllables and the sounds, which you really can't uh, do that in the same way with a translation because you're more going to be reading what the translator's choice was, which is interesting in its own right, but you can't quite sort of like if something's rhyming or, um, you know, they pick this word next to that word or whatever, uh, that, that tells you about the translator, but it doesn't necessarily tell you about the original poet or the original text. Um, and that, that there's a really interesting, I took a translation class in uh, college and the big sort of um, contention in translation theory kind uh, can be boiled down to sort of two concerns. One is uh, fidelity and the other is sort of like the effect or the feeling. So when you're translating, you can, if you're a sort of fidelity extremist, you know, you basically, you just get the literal words as close as possible, tethered, you probably like annotate it with footnotes that sort of contextualize everything. Um, but often the poem is going to suck as a poem because it's going to be, like clunky and awkward and then you're going to have like little numbers on top and then a like long academic prose on the bottom and on the other hand uh you have sort of the feeling or the effect uh where you just want to transmit the sort of you know the sensation that one would get uh if they're reading the original poem and that can be uh, instinctually more appealing, but it also can be has its own dangers. Uh, one famous example is Ezra Pound translated a bunch of Chinese poetry uh, and basically didn't know a lick of Chinese and uh, just like wanted to make it snazzy in English. And his translations are very fascinating, but they it was one of the first times that I think uh, Chinese poetry had been translated. Uh, in America, and certainly one of the most like famous, and so it sort of was an important moment in terms of like exposure of Chinese literature to America. And Pound was just like making shit up about like what he thought about these poems, and so did sort of like a cultural disservice uh, in that regard, potentially. Um, and so people try to find uh, you know a balance. Um, but that's it. Uh, this also makes me think, because you were talking about Godless, which is this Western show, because one of the clips uh, that we watched in this translation class was from Deadwood, uh, which is that HBO Western show. And we basically just watched like this two minutes where they just said like every profanity you could think of. Um, and but the professor's point was. Of, they didn't say because it was taking place in, I don't know, the 1800s or 1700s, maybe the 1800s, probably 1800s. They wouldn't they would have said like the Lord's name in vain or like, but they wouldn't have said fuck. But if you were watching uh, like the show and you just heard them saying like Jesus Christ or like something like that 
that wouldn't be that shocking to you, even if it would have been like true to the time. And so the creators of the show made a choice um, to go for the effect so that the show shocks you in the way that the town and its lawlessness would have shocked um, that society in that time, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value to, I mean, responsibly, you don't want to just completely make things up uh, as you're describing, but I think there's a lot of uh, value in making the emotional resonance ring true. Um, with this poem, one of the things that struck me, and I am curious to know how much of it is in the translation, but the repetition of various terms is sort of striking throughout and they recur in almost every time. It's almost the same, but just a little different each time. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on that and the how repetition is used and how those slight tweaks work. Yeah, no, that's a great point. It's interesting thinking about the secular nature of the translation, whether they made a choice for effect or sensation given a more like secular audience and therefore sort of removed the uh, more religious connotations because um, that sort of, that would be a choice for like effect in a contemporary audience rather than uh, fidelity. Um, but yeah, getting to uh, the repetition. Yeah, it's a very interesting, it's almost like uh, this, this little like unfolding uh, like bit by bit um, or like the movie Memento, the, the movie unfolds like it starts again and again and again and gradually gets longer or something like that. And so this sort of has a, a sort of like it steps out and then it steps out again and then steps a little further. Um, so, you know, uh, tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch. And then so we have that kind of statement, and then we're thinking about a fearful thing, to love, to hope, to dream, to be, uh, but then we're sort of, we remove death in that little stanza, but then it kind of comes back again, uh, to be and oh, to lose, um, but it's sort of a different fashion. To me, it feels like, there's a few ways that I think about it. One is, um, that I noticed one of the first things that I noticed was the, the change from can to has, uh, where the, the first stanza is to, to love what death can touch. And the end is, um, to love what death has touched. So in this sense, there's a passage of time that happens in the poem potentially, or, either in the in the head or maybe in some kind of implied narrative sense and where we're sort of either we're thinking about it in the abstract or we haven't yet lost someone or something and then by the end of the poem we have and so in that sense i feel like the the plotting of thoughts and of words is a way of slowing down the poem but that also makes the movements of the poem more pronounced so that we can sort of feel the movement itself. And so that that can sort of simulate the passage of time. It sort of reminds me of 
to make a prairie. The, I was thinking the same yeah. thing. I was thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, Cause that, how does that one go? Um, to make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee, one clover and a bee and a reverie. The reverie alone will do when bees are few or if bees are few. Yeah. If bees are few. Yeah. That's so good. Um, and so, yeah. And that sort of is restating the claim. And cause I feel like, you know, the, it's interesting, you know, that like um, Halevi was both a poet and this sort of philosopher. And this is kind of like a philosophical poem. And the question is, like, why is it a poem and not sort of a philosophical text? And I feel like you pointed out sort of the thing that makes it a poem is this kind of repetition, because it makes it um, not just a statement about what it is to love and, you know, what it is to lose, uh, where if it was, it would sort of happen in a one continuous sort of sentence that sort of maybe makes all the same points. But when you get you get the effect of reading it where if it was just like that, it's like this is just a, a, a very composed thought that happened like in an instant, basically, but it's just articulate. Whereas here, there's the unfolding of the thoughts itself, which sort of happens in the Dickinson poem. And that that unfolding process, I think, is the the essential poetic feature. Yeah, that's such a great point. And that unfolding does make it feel like it takes longer than it does, because something that we talked about with To Make a Prairie is it's this super short poem, but it feels like there's so much more happening than the whatever 35 or so words would indicate. And this itself is through line breaks. It takes up most of a page, but it's really, it's very few words. It's an incredibly short poem. And especially with the repetition, it's even fewer. Um, that's such a great point. And it takes about half the poem for the tenses to actually switch because they don't switch until the block uh, there is for your life has lived in me. That's where the first has comes in. And that's where it switches to being past tense. And it talks about remembering and then repeats the the end and the, the beginning and the end. Um, and you're yeah. right that that really lends itself to this complete like unfurling of thought because at first you're thinking about maybe the connection to the person and then it switches to thinking about the fact that there is now loss mixed in with that. Yeah. And it also, that's the first time that the second person is in there, which was another feature that I thought was very striking. Um, and I think actually has a sort of, I, I um, a place in like that there's a sort of a poetic, move that this is partaking in or maybe even inaugurating or something because it's so ancient but um where the beginning of the poem while it is unfurling a thought slowly in the way that a poem might there's sort of no sense of stakes uh for a long time it's just sort of like thinking about the thought and then as soon as it goes into the past tense there's also this second person for your life has lived in me. Your laugh once lifted me. Your word was gift to me, um, which is a side note, pretty nice translator move because there's like these nice little uh, lived in, lifted, gift in uh, kind of like internal rhyme going in there, which I like. Um, and that that sort of delayed introduction of the second person uh, another prominent example of that is in uh, Dylan Thomas's uh, Villanelle, Do Not 
go gentle into that good night. Uh, rage, rage against the dying of the light. But yeah, but in that in that poem, uh, each uh, stanza is sort of talking about different kind of men or people who are getting to the end of their life. But it's but it's mostly in the abstract um, or or theoretical until the very last stanza when the speaker sort of reveals that he's addressing his father who's dying. Uh, and so that, that sort of delays the stakes of the poem, um, which I think is an interesting effect where you kind of, you're able to uh, sort of take the ideas in some ways on their own terms first, and then you kind of get this revelation that like, oh, this is like what they've been thinking about uh, this whole time, which actually, now that I think about it, is also similar to this other famous, probably the only two famous villanelles, uh, One Art by Elizabeth Bishop, which is sort of that whole, like, the art of losing isn't hard to master. And the whole poem is about, uh, you know, I've lost, you know, countries and a bank, like a bank and cities, and um, it's sort of like, feels almost light until the very last stanza when it goes and even losing you and then you sort of get why uh the whole poem's reason for existence is like dealing with this immense loss in some fashion has sort of prompted the speaker to sort of like really think about what it means to lose and what it means to love definitely that's such a good point i was also thinking of uh in the way that this works it reminded me a little bit of a twist on how what the living do works, where everything sort of condenses to one point in that poem. Whereas here you start with the ideas, it condenses down to this section that's about not just does it introduce you, but it's specifically about you and me. So it suddenly has become very personal. But then from that inflection point, it goes back out into the ideas, which have been reframed by that inflection point, which I really, really liked. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, and I think that that would be an interesting, and maybe it's been written about, but I would love to read something that sort of tracks um, how the abstract and the kind of concrete, like, uh, are negotiated in poems. Because if I had to do a hot take, like, I do feel like now we're in a scene, we're in a contemporary moment where the abstract only has a place after the personal or the stakes or the concrete has been like realized and only then um, do you have an authority to sort of make a claim that big. Um, and I also think that, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting, like this poem has so much going on and it, it helps knowing that it's, you know, A, a translation and B and, you know, very ancient. Um, but if like a if if I had never seen it before and like a a student brought this in for me, like I would rip it apart probably because I'd be like, there's no concrete detail, because that's like the one thing that I preach about. Um, which I think A reflects um sort of a change in poems generally where like they used to have a much more didactic but in a wise way sort of aphoristic role 
or you know this is where you get your wisdom to a kind of vessel for personal expression or something uh, and so if if in the contemporary context this was produced not that it i mean and that that would be my when i say rip it apart it's like sort of my surface judgment because i'm sort of like in the weeds with contemporary poetry and it doesn't work as much as a vessel for personal expression its personal stakes serve the larger philosophical argument i think i think that's a great point because i'm trying to think of another poem that we've looked at that has been this detached from anything concrete and i don't think we've done one because even to make a prairie is about a physical existing idea of like the prairie is a real thing that you can picture right away this is about like death which has a physicality to it but nowhere near the same as a prairie or a clover and a bee like this is a very philosophical philosophically based idea heavy uh poem it gives it a broad applicability the way that a lot of aphoristic poetry gets to have. Uh, and so it can be a poem from almost a thousand years ago that can be put into a show set in the 1880s that can speak to me as a viewer in 2017. Um, admittedly, the show about the 1880s is meant to speak to me as a 2017 viewer. But the fact that this poem's presence in it doesn't feel like where'd this poem come from? Uh, the way that another one that specifically references, I don't know, like tractors or something or a red wheelbarrow they, uh, yeah, yeah. might be like, where, where's this coming from? You know, uh, have wheelbarrows really been invented yet? I don't know. It's the 1880s. It's possible, <laughs> but I've never seen one and maybe they weren't called that then, you know, like the lack of specificity does give it a, a different kind of of bent. And I think your point is well taken that you almost never run into poems, especially now, but even kind of in general that are this far removed. Cause even uh, fanciful poems or more experimental poems usually have a grounding in some kind of specific imagery. Maybe it's wacky wild imagery, but it's usually, you know, the wasteland is like still grounded in a lot of specific yeah, for wild sure. stuff, you know, like, even poems that go way out there are not necessarily these completely uh, philosophical, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is, like just a, a philosophical rumination on a big subject like love and death. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's very true. And actually the, the red wheelbarrow serves as a good uh, like marker of how things have changed because that begins with the stanza so much depends upon, and then it moves into the red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater, blah, blah, blah. Um, but like the fact that Williams feels like the most he can get away with in terms of like an abstract philosophical argument is to say so much depends upon. It's like so much of what? Like you can't even, it's just like something abstract is important that's related to this image that's very specific or something. Um, and I think that that does sort of show um, the increasing dominance of sort of concrete imagery, which, yeah, which has sort of always been important. But then, I mean, 
in that specific modernist context did it's had its most extreme um sort of presence in the the short lived but influential imagist movement which williams sort of was uh playing around with for a while um yeah but then at the same time one one thing that is i think it's the po this poem's strength is it's it's one kind of like big almost concrete image which is the use of the word touch in relation to death so what death can touch what death has touched um which i think is i mean for me i think it's striking because death is such an extreme and devastating and uh but also like large concept but it's 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 extremity you know is it's infinite and touch is you know um almost the opposite in terms of extremity where you can it's just the initial point of contact between um two things you know it's not what death has you know wrangled and dragged down into the pissy abyss kind of thing it's just like what death has touched merely um and i think that sort of gentle connotation paired alongside death um has a has a physicality to it that i think um does a lot of work for the poem definitely because it is it's so tactile and it's also not vicious it's actually not fearful i'm not afraid of a touch it's it's almost gentle and familiar it's the same kind of touch that you would expect this person who's writing has had with the person they've lost and is writing about it's the kind of interaction you'd expect them to have as people who were very close like it's it's just an intimate gesture um like the grim reaper is only the grim reaper in part because of the scythe like kind of there's i mean there's the menacing black garb or whatever but the the scythe is sort of the instrument of death which if it was just you know a light hand that would be a very different sort of connotation so i do think that yeah that's all i got <laughs> no that's that's a great point. point and there is a bit of an implied imagery in the personification of death uh and in the touching because it conjures uh, not, it doesn't explicitly state, but it does conjure an image of a physical entity of death and something for it to touch. In this case, you get the picture during the poem that is probably like a, a deceased friend or loved one of the, the author. So while there isn't explicit imagery, I do think that right at the beginning, it gives you the closest thing it can to physical images that it's going to. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, at least in the show Godless, it also... Uh, sort of speaks to how God operates in the world of the show, which is that it really is uh, the, the creator has talked about like this truly is a place where there is no official God necessarily present, but in his creation, the presence of God is in the communities that people would create for each other and the care that they would show for each other in the face of like a harsh landscape and the many challenges of uh, quote unquote frontier life. So I think yeah. that's kind of a neat way to show it with this poem. Um, yeah. Yeah. Apparently, uh, he didn't warn any of the. He didn't tell any of the actors that this was going to get read, and they all just like completely lost it when they heard it the first time. Oh wow! 
Yeah, the other thing that I like too, as we talk about the this unfolding process, is I like that the word, because of the repetition of words, you sort of like, I, I sort of read it, like I just, like there's terms. It's like term, it's like a term poem where there's like fearful, death, love, lose, holy, you know, those are all like important blocks in the in the text in a way that other poems they might not be um but so that makes me think that makes me think a lot when the word human comes in at the end in the last stanza uh tis a human thing love a holy thing to love what death has touched and there i get this sense that um i like that that the word human has also been delayed because then it makes me think that the 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 poem is sort of as it's also grieving um, the loss of this person. It's also building a sort of sort of like case for the features of what it is to be human, um, which is to say that it is to love, to lose, also to fear, also to be a fool, and also to be holy. Um, and kind of the nice thing about at least the way that that reads to me is there's you sort of keep the poem makes the case without it um, directly explicitly making the case and so it's just a case that you have to you like connect yourself without knowing it and so if even if you're a person who like thinks um you know being human is involves fear but it's not holy or like you're not you can be foolish but that's not you know the best humans are purely rational beings or blah 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 um each each moment in the poem but leading up to that is like a small thing that you can get on board with basically and then the sort of implied connection as a human thing at the end sort of like tricks you into sort of connecting all of those things, which I think is very sort of effective. That's a great point, especially I love that you bring out the fact that so much is implied in the poem. Just It kind of forces you to write yourself into it. Uh, it makes you such an active reader of the poem that you're almost putting your own experiences in the place of this non-specific language, which is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, and that's a great point because yeah. So that sort of reminds me, I was listening to this podcast called literary friction and they were talking about novellas and they were talking, they were interviewing this uh, writer from Wales, uh, Cunnan Jones, who has written um, a bunch of short novels. But one that they were talking about was called the cove, which is basically just this guy. I haven't read it, but who's like on the lake and then gets struck by lightning. And it's kind of this, you know, saga but he was try he was talking about how to make the sea even though it was sort of based on um his specific sea off of wales like a universal sea and he was talking about how people would come up to him or, or write to him and say you know i just loved how vivid um you know your descriptions of the sea were and like i just felt like i was there and he was like well, but like, look back at the language. Like, basically, all I say is there's like a 
uh, scraggle of rocks and like a wave here or there. Or, um, and really it's, it's just the, he made it so it's just the bare bones enough that you find yourself doing all the work to make it your own sea. And if you can succeed in making the reader do that work, then it's gonna be so much more vivid uh, than if it's like super detailed um, because, because the reader's creating it and it's gonna be their own sea that they know intimately well. So I think, yeah, I think you're right that um, th this poem is sort of operating in that same way. That's such a cool illustration of the point too, that you can just say like, oh yeah, gleaming blue water and a scaggle <laughs> of rocks. And he was like, oh shit, he yeah. must live in my town. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. Um, I know. It fits this poem so exactly because I could see all different circumstances of loss because this could be any kind of very meaningful loss in your life. It, it doesn't tell you it's a family member or a romantic partner or a pet or you know, and it's it's like a personal loss of some sort. So I doubt it would be like, oh no, I've lost my country, I guess. But maybe it could be, I don't know. It, it's it's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, maybe countries can laugh, I don't know. Not many are laughing these days, let me tell you. That's so true. There is an international happiness index, so. Oh, there yeah. you go. There's a, whole, there's a whole realm of happiness studies. <laughs> How cool is that? That is kind of cool. Yeah. I don't like that. Uh, um, do you have anything else? Well, the only thing is that the flip side of the bare bones relying on the reader is if it doesn't work, then it doesn't do anything. It's just a pile of pile of language that you read it and then you're like, well, guess I'll go have my biscuits. Um, and so there is a fine balance that probably shifts over time in terms of like how much work you need to do to get the reader to do the work that they need to do. Um, and, that's such an important point. Cause yeah. you can say you could write a poem. that's like death sucks. I'm sad because <laughs> of death, you know, or something that's just sort of engaging with it really basically <laughs> like that. And then like, we, this is not going to move anybody. Yeah, I'm unmoved. Yeah, I'm going to have a biscuit. <laughs> um, yeah, I think perhaps we should read it again. All right. Tis a Fearful Thing by Yehuda Halevi. Tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch. A fearful thing to love, to hope, to dream, to be, to be and oh to lose, a thing for fools this, and a holy thing, a holy thing to love. For your life has lived in me, your laugh once lifted me, your word was gift to me. To remember this brings painful joy. Tis a human thing, love, a holy thing to love, what death has touched. That does it for this episode of Close Talking. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to stay up to date on the latest Close Talking news or find old episodes, be sure to check out iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, where you can subscribe to Close Talking. 
You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at Jack Rossiter Munn for me, at Hot Sauce Boxed for Connor, and at Close Talking for the show. If you have thoughts on this conversation, different readings of this poem, or any of the other poems we've discussed, or if you have suggestions for poems that you'd like us to talk about in the future, please send us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com. <laughs>